All right, Revelation chapter 12 is where we are today. You can open up your Bibles there. Making our way through Revelation. Last week in chapter 11, we saw that a new temple is going to be rebuilt during uh, the tribulation, or at least it is there at the uh, halfway point of the tribulation. And we talked about the two witnesses a lot, these mysterious guys that come on the scene. And, and while the Antichrist has this rise where he comes from this uh, time of chaos, you know, the rapture takes place, worldwide earthquake takes place, and there's just chaos world, worldwide. And the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and just seem to solve all these problems. And we talked about how rebuilding the temple is going to be one of those problems that he solves. That bringing peace uh, in the Middle East and in Israel, uh, rebuilding the temple and the Temple Mount uh, has all kinds of issues and problems to it. This guy's going to solve it. But in that time, there's these two witnesses that are going to stand against him. Uh, they're going to be based there in Jerusalem, but their effect is going to go out worldwide. And as these guys stand for righteousness and stand on the scripture, they are identifying this person that at that point is one, the most popular person in the world. Everybody loves this guy. And these two witnesses are going to be saying, no, this guy is evil, right? And up until the halfway point of the tribulation, he is going to seem like a pretty great guy. And at the halfway point, it all changes. Israel's going to enter into a covenant. We're going to talk more about that today. Uh, into a covenant with him, believing this guy's the Messiah. And, and even today, if you talk with an Orthodox Jewish believer or an Orthodox Jewish person uh, and ask, who do you think the Messiah is or how will we know, how will you guys know that he is the Messiah? And, and the number one answer is he'll rebuild the temple. So they're already looking to the person to rebuild the temple as being the Messiah. Now, for the two witnesses, they stand against the Antichrist and preach there in Jerusalem until the halfway point of the tribulation where the enemy comes against them and makes war against them and overpowers them and, and kills them. They lay dead in the street for three and a half days. Well, the world hates these two guys and they actually rejoice over their death and celebrate it uh, by exchanging gifts with one another. And it's interesting too, that the only time during the tribulation that rejoicing is mentioned on the earth is at the death of righteous people. Nowhere else do we see the world rejoicing over anything except the death of the two witnesses. Then after three and a half days, the Lord raises them back to life and they ascend into heaven. Immediately after, there's an earthquake. A tenth of Jerusalem was destroyed and 7,000 people die. And it says, and the rest, meaning the rest of those who were in Jerusalem, gave glory to the God of heaven. We talked about that last week. The importance of it is that's the spark. There's, there's been this hatred towards the two witnesses. There's been this dislike and, and this hatred for the, anybody who holds to Jesus Christ. But at this point, there's something that happens there in the heart of the people of Israel to go, we might be wrong. And it's in chapter 12 that that spark becomes a raging fire. 
Things are about to change drastically for Israel. Um, their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to realize who the Antichrist is and who the true Messiah is as well. So let's pray and we will get in to chapter 12. Lord God, again, we just so want to hear from you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, apply your word to our hearts, give us ears to hear. And Lord, we just pray you'd remove distraction, anything that would draw us away. We don't want to miss a thing that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadem on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. A great sign appeared in heaven. This is actually one of seven signs that John's going to talk about over the next three chapters. Um, and a couple of them are in this chapter here. And, uh, and so these different aspects are going to come out. But the first is this woman. And it's important to know we're told that this is a sign. So this isn't a literal woman right? It's not a literal dragon. And it, we need to understand that because I think a lot of confusion comes with Revelation on two sides. One is some people view that all the things in Revelation are up for interpretation. Everything's symbolic. Just change it, make it whatever you want. Of course, they go off in crazy directions, right? The other thing is, is to take everything literal and not understand what is symbolic. And so the great thing is we're told, this is symbolic. This is a sign, right? This is something that there is a truth to it, but it has great symbolic meaning and it's being given to us in a picture. Uh, again, the best way for us to interpret signs, symbols, types, shadows is by the scriptures themselves. Best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And anytime we start looking to too many other things, again, we take the chance of just running off course, right? God explains His Word to us in a way that we can understand and uses the same pictures over and over again. Again, with this, it is important to know it's not a literal woman. But as, if we look into Scripture, uh, it'll, it'll become clear as we go on. Again, those that, that, try, that don't understand Scripture just go off in crazy directions. Mary Baker Eddy, the lady that started Christian Science, said that she was the woman. Very convenient for her, right? Christian Science. Uh, it's a lot like the breakfast cereal grape nuts. It isn't grapes and it isn't nuts, right? 
It isn't Christian and it isn't science. And unfortunately, everybody that, that didn't understand or didn't look to the scriptures, they just went, okay, you're the woman in Revelation. She's not. Uh, the Catholic Church uh, has believed and taught that it is Mary that's represented here. And, and if you see uh, some, really throughout the history of the Catholic Church, often Mary is drawn or painted, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet with a garland of 12 stars, right? Now, that's closer than Mary Baker Eddy, but that still isn't right either. Uh, again, we look to the Scripture to know what is true and to know who this woman is. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Uh, in Genesis chapter 37, starting about verse 9, Joseph has a dream, and in his dream, his parents are the sun and the moon, and his brothers, his 11 brothers, are 11 stars, so Joseph would be the 12th. These are the patriarchs of Israel, and this is what we're seeing in this picture. This woman is not a literal woman, it's Israel. And again, that makes perfect sense as, as the rest of this starts to unfold. These patriarchs of Israel are, are all put together into this picture of the woman. Um, and if you remember, we've talked about this a lot. One of the main purposes of the tribulation is for Israel. Other things are going to be happening. More Gentiles are going to be getting saved and coming to Christ during the tribulation. But primarily, and especially scripturally, this is the last week of Daniel that's described in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, the angel describes 70 weeks that are set aside for Israel and for Jerusalem, and 69 of them have passed. It, it, he gives the exact day that the Messiah would be revealed to Israel, which is the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey, the triumphant entry. But one week remains. This seven-week for the seven-year period, instead of seven days, the week is seven years that was given to Daniel. And this is the last one. And this is really kind of the same progression. While in Daniel it talked about the, the coming of the Messiah, and then it goes on to talk about this last seven-week period, the things that will take place. Um, in verse 2 it says, Being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. The Messiah had to come through Israel. That was God's plan all along. He made it very clear that it would be through the line of David, and the promises that were made to Abraham would all be fulfilled in his descendants, Israel. Um, and sure enough, Jesus, the Messiah, arrived in painful times for Israel. They were conquered, they were defeated, and they were crying out, to be delivered. All of these pictures just line right up. Verse 5 uh, makes it clear that this child uh, is Jesus. One of the other things that people say is that the woman is actually symbolic of the church. But it can't be, because in, church, in verse 5, it makes it clear that the child came from the mother, right? Jesus didn't, or excuse me, the church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church, right? 
But the Messiah came through Israel. Then in verse 3, it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadem on his heads. Again, not a literal dragon. This is a description of the devil. And that's going to be made absolutely clear as we move on that that's what this symbolizes. But it is a picture of his character, not his person. And again, there's that idea that the devil is hideous and ugly and has horns and a pitchfork. Actually, Scripture says the opposite, that he appears as an angel of light. Beautiful on the outside. This is, this is describing his character, what he's about. That he is vicious and of a murderous nature. And I believe the understanding of, of who he is, a lot of it is, is brought out in this picture. Again, powerful, terrible, strikes fear because of his evil and murderous nature. Uh, seven heads and ten horns. Uh, horns are a picture of authority throughout Scripture. That when there talks about a horn or there's a vision and about, a, you know, Daniel has several different visions about horns and what takes place. It's about authority, right? And heads go along with that. So again, it's speaking of this great authority. But what's interesting is in Daniel chapter 7, this whole thing is described not only speaking of the devil, but the Antichrist is brought into it. And it also points to a revived Roman Empire. Again, I'm not going to get into all that because it gets a little bit crazy. But um, ten horns, seven heads, this revived Roman Empire that's spoken of in Daniel 7 starts off with ten kingdoms. The Antichrist will subdue three of them, leaving seven. Also, the city of Rome is called the city of seven hills. And so again, these, kind of, these things are kind of pointing along that same line of the end times and the rise of the Antichrist. In verse 4, speaking of the dragons, as he drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. One third of the angels fell with Satan in his rebellion. And we don't know all, we don't actually don't know hardly any details about that, other than Satan believed that he could set his throne above the Most High, that he believed that he was greater than God. Well, Satan is simply a created angel, he is a powerful angel, one of the archangels. We know of three, and Satan was one of them. And most likely, that uh, makes sense that it, he was over a third of the angels and took a third of them with him when he rebelled. Uh, and his purpose, his desire, is to kill the Messiah. Now, literally, that took place when Herod tried to kill the children of Bethlehem, right? Now, Herod thought he was doing that all on his own, but that was demonically inspired, and the Lord was already aware of it, knew how to save Jesus, knew how to get Mary and Joseph out of there and put, send them off to Egypt. But it also shows that that has always been the enemy's purpose. That's one example. But that didn't stop there. Through tempting Jesus and attempting to, to draw him into sin, all of the things throughout the ministry of Jesus, 
It was for the purpose of taking his life at some point. It says that on his ten heads are ten diadem, which are crowns. But it's important to understand, again, this is a reflection of his character. These are crowns that he has been placed on his head in rebellion. That he desires to kill the Messiah because the Messiah is a threat to him and his kingdom. It is a kingdom of rebellion. And he knows that the one born to rule all nations will remove him from his place. Verse 5 says, the, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. The idea of a rod of iron is that indestructible, unchanging, forever. And then her child was caught up to God in his throne. Uh, again, this great sign in heaven jumps a huge section of time. It talks about Jesus' arrival and then his ascension. Skips his ministry, <laughs> everything, and, and then skips really the other things uh, that would take place after that. But the point is, is that this attempt by the devil failed. Jesus accomplished his work conquered death, ascended into heaven, and now is enthroned forever. And again, we follow kind of the timeline of what's being said here in this great sign in heaven. Israel is used to bring about the Messiah. The devil tries to destroy him. Jesus defeats him, ascends. But then what's next for the woman? So again, there's, again, there's this huge part that's left out. There is about a 2,000-year gap between verses 5 and 6, over 2,000 years, that the woman is to flee into the wilderness. This is yet to happen. This is our future. This is what takes place for Israel halfway through the tribulation. And so the whole church age is skipped over here. But again, the focus of what's being talked about or this picture is Israel itself. And that this is the point where their eyes are starting to be opened. Last week, again, we talked about the two witnesses and their ministry and their death and their resurrection and ascension. All of that was the spark where Israel began to give glory to the God of heaven again. But now something takes place. This spark is going to become a raging fire. And we'll see as we, we move on that it's mentioned briefly here that she flees to a place of safety. Um, and she stays there for the last half of the tribulation, which is the 1,260 1, days or three and a half years. Now, if you do the math, you're like, that doesn't exactly work out. In the Hebrew and even the ancient Roman culture, the year was 160 days instead of 165, right? That's the only reason it doesn't work. In that day, it was three and a half years is how they looked at it. Um, all right, verse 7. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. And they did not prevail, nor was place 
found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives into, to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil and his angels losing their place in heaven. Now this can be a little bit confusing because we know that Satan was cast out of heaven in the past. Even Jesus talked about it when he said, I saw Satan cast to the earth like lightning. And that was speaking of Satan's original fall. But one of the things either people don't know or we don't like to talk about a whole lot is that God has allowed Satan to have a certain amount of access to heaven still. And that makes some people very uncomfortable. Well, what, but God can't be in the presence of sin. Well, God can't sin, but he allows Satan to have a certain place, right? We see that in the book of Job, where Satan comes before God and, and begins to say, well, you know, Job wouldn't love you if you didn't bless him so much. And, and so he does have access, limited only by permission, but he does have access. And so this is speaking of a battle that is yet to occur. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to take place. Um, and, and really, even here, it, it shows that Satan has had access to heaven. In verse 10, says that he accuses the brethren day and night before God. Which to me would be super irritating. I mean, can you imagine just having to listen to this guy all the time? It's like, I know. <laughs> but the reality is, is that he goes there and he's not accusing other people far off. It's you and I. It's the followers of Christ. He's saying, do you know what these guys are doing? Do you know what they did when no one was looking? Do you know what their motives really are? Which is the same thing that he did with Job. They wouldn't love you if you didn't bless them. If you lifted your protection from them, they'd curse you, right? It's that same accusatory thing, day and night. And I imagine, again, I have these little like cartoon pictures in my head of the angels being super irritated, that he's allowed in, that he's allowed to accuse, and finally that's going to come to an end. Now, it hasn't yet. Uh, but again, uh, this is mentioned in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, it talks about this. It talks about Michael's involvement, that he will stand up, and the idea is stand up to fight. And, and really, this whole thing going down for the good and deliverance of, of Israel. I'm just going to read you the last part. This is Daniel 12, the end of verse 1. 
And it says, And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So Daniel 12 talks about, hey, Michael's going to stand up. There's going to be a battle. But all of this is for the deliverance of Israel. And they will be delivered. Now to me, again, my own imagination, so take it for what it's worth, but imagine the ferocity, the just viciousness of a battle between fallen angels and heavenly angels that cannot die of all their power and all of their strength. And don't misunderstand, Satan and Jesus are not equally matched at all, right? Jesus has all power, all authority, but this battle is between Satan and Michael, and they are evenly matched. They are both archangels. And I can't imagine the viciousness of what this battle will look like. Good news is, the devil loses again. As he always does, and will continue to. Verse 8 says, And they did not prevail, nor was place found for them in heaven any longer. And the powers of hell, defeated, cast completely out, no more access to heaven, uh, and this proclamation of praise goes out. That's what I, I picture, you know, all the angels like, yes, finally, we're done having to deal with this guy, you know. Listen to all of his nonsense. But in this proclamation of praise, and there's some question, is this one of the angels saying this? Um, I actually don't think so. I think that this is one of the saints or one of the elders because it's speaking of our brethren, and, it, and it's speaking of those who have been saved and, and those that are part of the followers of Christ redeemed is kind of the, is the whole idea. But um, we're given these three powerful insights of how the devil's accusations are overcome. And because this is the time that we still live in. Our, we're being accused day and night, still before the throne. And we are hearing it in our head. You know, I could almost deal with it more going, okay, go ahead. <laughs> you talk to God about it. The problem is, is that I, I hear those accusations in my own head. Right? I second guess myself. And it isn't just the devil. It's my own flesh. It's my own fallen nature that are going, I can't believe what you're doing. Or I can't believe what you said. Or I can't believe you've got these motives. Right? And it, it's constantly bringing us into this fearful place. They're all dealt with with these three things that are given to us in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. First of all, the blood of the Lamb. Now, it's not the idea that the blood of Jesus is somehow some magic thing that just removes you know, sin. It's what he did for us on the cross. It's the work of redemption that he did gave his life for us. He allowed his blood, innocent, perfect, and holy, to be spilled to pay our debt. And nothing we have done, no sin we've committed, no temptation that we've had, can stand against the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. The work of the cross has removed it all. And we are seen in Jesus as white as snow. Our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, and God has chosen to forget it. 
powerful. The next is the word of our testimony. This is so much easier than we make it. The word of our testimony is simply speaking what God has done in us. It isn't just talking about the day we got saved. It's talking about what he's doing right now. It's talking about something we got out of the Word when we were reading. It's something that we got out of a Bible study that we were hearing. It's just speaking the things that we have seen and heard of the goodness of Jesus Christ. And again, I think too often we look at that as go, I don't, I don't really have a testimony. Have you? I've talked to people that will say that. I didn't, you know... I wasn't a criminal and I wasn't like running guns across the border and I didn't do all these horrible things. So I don't have much of a testimony. Oh, yes, you do. Because you are a lost sinner like every single one of us, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and empowered and filled with his Holy Spirit. And for us to speak what God has done, to speak what we have seen and heard of his goodness is powerful. It's in the top three of power. And too often we go, "Ah, I don't know. I don't really have much to share or talk about. Yeah, we do. Don't let the flesh, don't let the enemy convince you otherwise. Because he wants to. He wants to take away the power of your testimony and tell you you don't have one. Tell you nobody's interested in hearing it. That's a lie from the pit. The power of your testimony is, it changes things. Because it, again, puts the focus on His goodness, on His greatness, on His faithfulness. It humbles us because it shows that we need Him. And it reminds not only us, but everybody we talk to to go, yeah, we need more of Jesus. We need to be changed by Him. We need to submit to His Word. It destroys the lies and the deception of the enemy. And then the last, and again, sometimes this is only taught as two things, but the last is just as important as the first two, not loving our lives to death. Not being those that are holding on to every single moment and scrap of this fallen world. And that's the idea here. Knowing that heaven is our home and that everything here is temporary. Nothing will last. And really, that's a great picture as we think about the book of Revelation and the tribulation that we're going to see everything falling apart. Like I said, you could look at it as God just taking his stuff. (laughs) You don't want me? Then you don't get my stuff. And so he just starts removing his stuff from the earth. No peace, no joy, um, no water, (laughs) no food. There you go. Now, how do you like it, right? That's my attitude, not his. Sorry. But not loving our life to death. Going, you know, no, even the very best, even if you had the entire world, it would only be temporary. What good would it do to inherit the entire earth yet lose your immortal soul? Letting all this stuff go. Keeping it in that perspective of it's temporary. Paul said this in uh, Philippians chapter 1, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Man, that that just sums it up. Man, if I'm here, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to do whatever I need. I'm going to share my testimony. I'm going to talk about the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when I go home, 
bye. <laughs> Later, y'all. I don't care because I get to be with the Lord. And again, these three things disarm the enemy. And you think about how many things, really, I think everything in one way or another of sin and temptation that we fall into are somehow clinging to this life. And to let all that go, and we're set free. And I think these are things that we need to continually remind each other of and be reminded of. You know, you're going, three things, I can remember that. But there's just that subtle drifting that takes place where suddenly again, oh yeah, the blood of Jesus, it's important. Yeah, our testimony, it's important. No, I don't really, you know, I know that my heaven's in home someday, but it just seems to lose impact on us. It's something we as a body and as believers need to remind and encourage each other in over and over again. Now, when these events take place and the devil and his angels are cast out of heaven, man, they hit the earth enraged. And so what we'll see, not only in this chapter, but going on in the book of Revelation, is that now it is on. That the devil is going to empower the Antichrist like, like never before and going after Israel, as we'll see in this chapter, but going after believers and just filled with rage. And it isn't that the devil doesn't know his end. I just think somehow he's convinced himself he's got a chance. And it's at this point he realizes, I'm running out of time. Right? That this being cast out of heaven completely, and the warning goes out. You know, it says, heaven rejoice, but woe to the earth. For the devil has come down to you, full of rage, knowing that his time is short. Verse 13 says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman and gave, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time, another way of saying three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan hits the ground, knows his time is running out, and again puts his attention back on Israel. Uh, and in doing so, he's empowering the Antichrist to go after Israel. Uh, and really, this is, again, kind of big picture stuff that's taking place for the nation of Israel. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, I really encourage you guys to read Daniel chapter 9 uh, and chapter 7, maybe chapter 12, <laughs> because all of this is like pointing to this time of Israel and the things that are taking place. And that spark that we saw last week, man, it is starting to light off. In Daniel chapter 9, 
we find that the Antichrist, at the same time, and it's probably right after the two witnesses die, he goes into the temple and defiles it. We don't know how. Some say he sets up an image, and there are some things that point to that. Others say he makes an unholy sacrifice. But whatever he does, this is when Israel goes, you're not the Messiah. And that spark that started ignites. And they realize that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah that they've always been waiting for. And they book it out of Jerusalem and out of Israel, knowing that this Antichrist that they had signed a covenant with is evil. And they run off and out. Uh, Verse 15 says that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now, again, we don't know exactly what this is. Some people say it's a great army. Others say, no, it's some kind of weapon or it's some kind of whatever it is. It's to destroy Israel. It's not for their good. He is doing whatever this thing is, demonically empowered to kill Israel, and it doesn't work again. Again, I love it, right? That the enemy, every time he makes some grand attack, he is put down. Now, they run off to this place of safety. A lot of people think that this is the city, the stone city of Petra, uh, and it might be. There's a scripture that, that points to something similar to that. I'm always baffled by it because, especially in our day and age, how could there be any place in the whole world that the Antichrist can't reach or that the devil can't reach? Again, there is a supernatural empowerment and protection over Israel, wherever that is that they end up. And they are cared for, they are fed, and they are protected for three and a half years, which is the second half of the tribulation. Uh, And so the devil goes after her offspring. The offspring is not referring to the other people of Israel. It's referring to the Gentile believers that have gotten saved during the tribulation. We are the offspring of Israel. We are adopted in, grafted into the vine. They're the ones that God began his work with, made a covenant with, and we've been adopted into that covenant, right? So, the offspring are those who have, been, uh, have come to Christ. And again, the devil's rage and fury is against them with everything he has. For us, again, looking at it, what's the application in our lives? Well, again, we're not facing the intensity that we're reading about here for Israel or for the believers in the tribulation, but we still have the same enemy that they're facing. We, we have an enemy that hates us, that wants to take us down, that wants to minimize what God has done in our life, if not remove it completely, if he could. And for us, it's coming back to those three powerful weapons that have been given to us. The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and knowing that heaven is our eternal home. Again, for us to just come back and just remember and focus on that puts everything else into perspective. And we're not going to get caught up and and rattled by the lies of the deception of the enemy. And we're not going to get pulled out of place by the things that this world has to offer. Knowing that we have a true king, the true king of all nations. And that the world 
will come to know who he is. Whether they choose to follow him or not is up to them, but they will know. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have all of these things under control. While the world will seem to be out of control in that day, you've got it all handled. And Lord, we trust you with our lives. I pray that you give us opportunity, even this week, to share our testimony, to speak the good things that you are doing and have done in our lives. Lord, that we would remember the great power that is in your blood to cleanse and save us from ourselves, save us from our sin. And Lord, that you would uh, help us to have eyes and a focus that is set upon your kingdom in heaven, that we would not fall back into the traps and the temptations of this world, but know that you have set us free and that all of this is temporary. Your home is eternal. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.